listeners. Today I begin the first of a two-part survey on French legal history. For today's episode, I spoke with Professor Ada Kaskowski. Professor Kaskowski is a medieval historian and legal historian at the University of Pennsylvania. Her work weaves together approaches from history, law, and literature with the larger goal of understanding how legal cultures developed in Europe during the Middle Ages. Her recent book, Vernacular Law, Writing in the Reinvention of Customary Law in Medieval France, was published in 2022, and her forthcoming book is Law of Conquest, a Medieval Prehistory. Hello, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So this is a legal history podcast, but I'd like to start by giving the listeners a little overview of medieval French history to put everything in context. Can you first sort of describe what the political and social context was for uh, our conversation today? Yes. Yeah. And I actually, that's an essential question for understanding the picture of law in the period, because we're very much talking about a France in the making. And so if we take a pivotal moment, say the 13th century, um, it's expedient to speak of France, uh, but the idea of France, the physical territory, and even the power of the kings is very much in flux. So conquests and acquisitions in the late 12th century, um, 13th century begin to give France kind of a recognizable modern shape. But just to show you the stark difference um, between kind of a brief period, in the middle of the 12th century, uh, the area of France, half of it is actually in the control of the Angevin kings of England. The South is largely independent. So that's the mid 12th century. About a century later, mid 13th century, these areas are largely under the control of the French kings between conquests and marriages, a crusade in the South, by the mid 13th century, the map of France is looking more like what we would call France today. And it's also in this period, sort of in the 13th century, that the kings shift from referring to themselves as kings of the Franks, so kings of a people, to the kings of France. So they really affirm the idea of France as a concrete political and territorial entity, but it's still very much in the making. That's interesting. When I think of France, the first thing I think of is cheese. But the second thing I think of is, is centralization in Paris, basically. So where sort of was government at this point in time um, throughout, throughout, I guess, this transformation that you're talking about? So I would say that government is both, you might say, centralized and decentralized at the same time in the sense that there's ever-increasing initiatives by kings throughout the 13th century especially to create a more unified political entity under their own auspices. But France remains pretty decentralized and fragmented in a lot of ways, despite this push coming from the monarchy. So for instance, the French nobility wields a lot of power and influence. Many nobles have vast estates, essentially autonomous. Um, essentially autonomous, though the the king is theoretically their lord, practically, they often behave quite independently. And this, this leads to conflicts with the monarchy and kings like 
Louis the Ninth in the mid 13th century, um, Philip the Fair later, they they have conflicts with the nobility and attempting to assert royal power. And this, so it's both true that the king is gaining power and that the nobles have a lot of power. Um, maybe more a situation of suzerainty than sovereignty and kind of the language that we, we use to describe political power. And this continues to be true for a while, though centralization um, and increasing royal power will continue throughout the 13th, 14th century, and especially after the end of the Hundred Years' War. That's an interesting contrast. I think I had a pre- uh, conversation with Professor Hudson about England roughly in this same time period. And he made the point that England was actually pretty centralized around this time, essentially because England was way smaller uh, than continental uh, entities. Do you think that the ge- uh, geography of France impacted this? So I think that's absolutely right. England is smaller. It's also governed as the result of conquest. France is bigger and it doesn't have an overarching, a recent overarching moment of conquest to kind of unify it. So between both of those things, I think it creates a quite different political situation. And in some ways, you might say that the kings of England are kind of bad vassals of the kings of France, depending on when you're talking about. Okay, that's interesting. So before our time period that we're talking about today, I'm wondering if you could tell us sort of how law worked uh, in the early medieval era in France. Were there courts? Uh, were there law books? Uh, how Can you give us a, a frame of reference for this transition period we're going to start talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the 12th century is usually described as a pivotal moment. Uh, you might say late 11th to early 13th century. And both periods before and after are described as ages of customary law, but that means really different things before and after the 12th century. So before, and this is a big generalization, um, but to, to generalize in a big way, I would say people spoke of law, but oftentimes when they say law, it's indistinguishable from other kinds of obligation. So um, moral obligations, religious ones, or personal ones. And there are courts, but they're comparatively unprofessionalized. You don't have people studying law. You don't have people who professionalize in law specifically running or participating in the courts largely. And the resolution of disputes is really understood, I would say, more uh, within, uh, less within a legal framework and more within a mediation framework. So often disputes are resolved through negotiation aimed at peace to create a resolution between parties rather than selecting a winner or a loser according to clear established written rules. And custom, which becomes a way of expressing kind of the important, the the main norms of French society, the main legal norms. In the period before the 12th century, the term custom appears a lot, but it often means an imposition or an exaction rather than a specifically a kind of legal norm. And so you have custom but it functions differently from from how it does later in terms of being a customary 
rule that's written and that's known. Uh, that doesn't mean there's pure chaos, right? Um, so we certainly have a lot of individual documents known as charters testifying to uh, transfers of land, various contractual situations. So what we have is a very lively, I might describe it as a lively contractual culture, but they're not texts describing comprehensively what law looks like. There's no one book you can open that tells you this is how, this is what you should do if you need to go to court. That's great. Let's follow that thread a little bit. So what sort of, before we get into the specifics, what sort of caused maybe a shift into something more of a formalized form of law? So it's necessarily, like the answer is necessarily multifactorial. And a lot of these factors are pan-European, not necessarily specific to France. One important one is the investiture controversy, or more broadly, which can be characterized as battles between church and state. The investiture controversy explodes in the late 11th century and continues in the 12th century. And the crux of it is to draw boundaries between lay and religious authority. And uh, this has real repercussions for legal authority. But these big battles between church and state is definitely one. One big broad one is population growth, increasing trade, rise of cities, simply more complicated disputes that arise from all of these things. Canon law, the law of the church, begins to develop in a really sophisticated way. The, the canonists outline procedure of the courts. Uh, they outline various norms that regulate the courts. Alongside this, there's the rise of the university. So you can go and study Roman law, uh, the law as codified in big law books in the 6th century by under the auspices of Roman Emperor Justinian are dusted off and they begin to be studied at the university level alongside canon law. You can study one type of law or both kinds of law. And so this produces graduates who are specialists in legal knowledge, and they go to work in administration, sometimes ecclesiastical, sometimes secular. So um, all of these things are kind of bubbling across Europe, really, and France is a part of that to kind of change the picture of law is. And so across Europe, you see courts formalizing and law books starting to be written to capture um, to capture that action from Castile to France to England uh, to the Crusader states. Uh, we have a formalization of law happening, not just at you know royal levels or lordly levels, but also city, municipal law, um, as well as uh, maritime law, just on many, many different fronts. And for the listener, I did a whole episode with Professor Anders Winroth about some of the specifics of the reemergence of Roman law sort of more generally or academically. So it's good to connect those two things here. Uh, you can see concretely how that has an outcome uh, or has an influence on a specific uh, country's legal system. Uh, we have been talking, generally speaking, I think we've touched on law a little bit, but I think it's time to get uh, real legal here. Uh, can you can you sort of give a description of what the court system was like, both ecclesiastical and uh, secular in medieval France? 
I think the best word to capture courts as they function in medieval France, and at this point we're in high or late medieval France between 12th and 14th century, shall we say, the best term to capture that is really legal pluralism. So there are different kinds of courts. They uh, The system is, you might say, complex and uh, a mixture of royal courts, lord's courts, uh, town courts, ecclesiastical courts. And so there is, we talked about royal centralization efforts. There's certainly um, efforts uh, to standardize things a little bit on the royal front, but there's just a multitude of overlapping jurisdictions. And when judicial proceedings start to be recorded, which is really starting in the 13th century, one of the things we see is jurisdiction being one of the main, one of the, the big issues being debated and ironed out. But just to give an idea of kind of the, some of the types of courts that existed, at the lowest level, there are lords courts or what you might call seigneurial courts. They're presided over by minor, minor noblemen or judges, and they handle issues within the particular domain. They might handle disputes between uh, vassals, they might handle land tenure issues, property, some kinds of criminal cases. A subset of these is the manorial court. It's at the kind of most particular level uh, relating to manors and the agricultural estate around the manor. And that would be a place where peasants could resolve their disputes. Uh, also at the low level would be a village court or a small town court. Above that, there would be city courts. And in the 13th century, there develops uh, a more formalized appeal system where you could potentially appeal a decision from a lower court successively through courts all the way up to the king's court, which uh, was um, in Paris and was called the Parliament of Paris. And this was really the highest court in France in the period. Uh, and we have, we begin to have uh, cons consistent records of the judicial proceedings in that court in the mid, in the mid 13th century. So in the 1250s. So the king has his royal court in Paris, but also has a presence outside of Paris through a system of royal justices, which develops in the late 12th century under King Philip Augustus. And you have these world, it's a bit different from what develops in England uh, with the system of ro roving justices. Here you have a royal justice that's appointed to uh, a region for a specific limited term, usually a year, and then they might move to a different region. Um, so these are kind of anti-corruption measures. And these uh, royal justices who are in the region, they hear matters uh, that are considered within royal ju jurisdiction or appeals to the king. And uh, their presence, of course, is a way of extending and cementing, uh, creating a presence for royal authority and royal legal authority, especially in the provinces. So that gives an idea. But I do want to emphasize that mediation and resolution of disputes outside of courts remains really important. And that's one of the things we see in the law books that are written in the 13th century. They specify that judges should seek to actually mediate disputes so that it doesn't lead to, to court. 
what I just described was lay jurisdiction, but there was also courts that were administered by the church. And these ecclesiastical courts were presided by officials known as a official or an ordinary. Uh, and they also exist at various levels. So from the village to the city to um, all the different levels, there are ecclesiastical courts. And there also, you can have a dispute that begins in a village and is appealed all the way up to the Pope depending on which century we're talking about, the Pope is in Rome or in Avignon. But it also has an appeal system. Jurisdiction between lay and ecclesiastical was a little bit fuzzy sometimes, but we can say that uh, the ecclesiastical courts had jurisdiction over churchmen, uh, clerks, widows, crusaders, wills, marriage, and you know, other matters of, of family law. So these two systems exist side by side, but they use different forms of law. And one of the kind of tasks or challenges as a medieval litigant was figuring out where to go, um, but also to see what was most advantageous to you. So people would also use the two side by side systems as a, a mode of forum shopping. Yeah, thank you for that. That's that's very helpful. And it sounds rather complicated. And I'm wondering, you know, if I'm just a farmer, how do I interact with this legal system? Do I hire a lawyer? Do I have to do this all myself? Do I get a lawyer maybe for higher up parts of the uh, maybe higher appeals and just deal with my neighbor face to face? You know, were there lawyers uh, populating the system? So lawyers begin to populate the system in the 13th century, and they increase exponentially. So you start getting a lot of, uh, or you a significant number anyway, of poems lamenting the fact of lawyers being everywhere now. At the same time, if you are a farmer um, in the countryside, you may not necessarily you know, use a lawyer for your particular dispute. If you're wealthier, you might. Um, also, there were certain kinds of issues where uh, you couldn't use a lawyer. So for instance, criminal defense, you had to speak for yourself, you couldn't have somebody else speaking for you. But uh, lawyers, especially university trained lawyers, you might say are barely extant at the beginning of the 13th century and are common by the end of the 13th century. So it's really a moment where we see the specific picture of law changing. And in fact, uh, there are these vernacular law books that are composed for ordinary litigants to try to understand a legal practice that's changing because practice itself is becoming more formalized and you now have to know various steps of what to do. You can't just show up and talk about being upset that something happened to you. You now have to frame these things in terms of legal arguments that are legible to the courts. Say your average judge what kind of legal education would they have? And then I, after that, I want to contrast that to maybe, yeah, your average uh, litigant, whether that be what we'd call today pro se or or maybe just sort of a uh, normal town lawyer or whatever. So the answer to that question would depend on whether we're talking about the lay courts or the ecclesiastical courts. In the 13th century, in the lay courts, there's still a lot of judges who don't have a uh, formal education in the sense of a university law degree, but who have a lot of legal knowledge through attending court and sitting as a judge um, because they either have to um, as a vassal or because they have legal issues 
of their own. So people pick up a lot of law simply by participating in court cases. Uh, that's true for a lot of lower courts. The Parliament of Paris by the end of the 13th century is changing a lot. And we're seeing a lot of people who have university educations, especially in terms of the personnel um, under Philip the Fair, who's the king at the end of the 13th, beginning 14th century. So it, it depends what level of courts for the lay courts. Uh, for ecclesiastical courts, at this point, we're usually dealing with educated, professionalized kinds of judges who have to have a specific training in the procedure as well as the contents of the canon law, right? The law of the church. That makes a lot of sense. So if I'm just a normal person in France, I'm not speaking uh, legal Latin at this point in time, right? Um, how am I supposed to understand the law? Well, the action in the court in lay courts is vernacular, though records were in Latin mainly until the 13th century, and then you get bilingual records after that. Uh, so you would certainly understand what's happening in the court, that's vernacular action, um, though you might not have an ability to study law in a more sophisticated way until we get translations which is in the 13th century of some of these university texts, or uh, if you get your hands on one of these law books of customary law or not, uh, maybe somebody would read it out loud to you, right? So the benefit of having vernacular literatures uh, is that people don't have to know how to read, they just need to know how to listen. And uh, one of the authors of one of the customary law books, Pierre de Fontaine, addresses specifically both readers and listeners. He knows that some people will be getting the information just by listening. In the, the canon law courts, the ecclesiastical courts tended much more towards Latin, but still people were interviewed, for instance, in their vernacular languages. So, um, so you still took part, but you likely didn't understand a significant amount of what was going on. And records, of course, were in Latin. Could you maybe describe some of the pros and cons of a vernacularization of law? I'm mostly going to answer that question with pros, honestly. I mean, Latin throughout the medieval period is a language of authority, a language of power. It's also a language of transcultural communication. So people would learn Latin in England, in Poland, in Italy, in Spain, right? And they could go and study at Bologna and all communicate with each other. So there's certainly uh, a great benefit to having international languages like that. But there's also the fact that such a small minority of people had the leisure of learning these languages and let alone kind of studying at university levels and so on. The vernacularization of law, I think, is a really important movement in making law increasingly, um, I don't want to say democratic, because it seems like an anachronistic word, but um, making law at a sophisticated level available and accessible. Uh, so especially in a society when a lot of people are still representing themselves, um, having access to uh, the terminology and procedure of law is 
a really, really beneficial thing. I want to highlight, though, kind of what I said before, right, legal practice was always in the vernacular, but something that starts happening in the 13th century is not just um, these, the development of university law in Latin, but vernacular legal practice itself, partially, you know, in contact with um, Roman law ideas, canon law ideas, is becoming more sophisticated. So what you see is the development of legal jargon, um, in the vernacular, a lot of it drawn from Roman or canon law, not all of it. And so, um, so people have to start making an effort to understand some aspects of, of law, even if it's in a language that they understand. That's uh, very thought provoking and definitely something to chew on. Okay. With that in mind, can you describe to me the legal sources in this time period? Yes. So, uh, you know, focusing on the secular courts, custom is really the primary norm or customary law. So if you go to court, you would be saying it's the custom of champagne that it's the custom of burgundy that you're referring to custom rather than usually you're referring to custom rather than legislation. Um, what custom was is sometimes clear and obvious and sometimes not so clear and obvious. So there's some customary rules that nobody would ever dispute. You would say, for instance, a popular one is that there are three continuances in secular court, which means you get three delays before you absolutely have to go to court. Um, this is a well-known uh, rule of customary law nobody would have disputed, but some of them are disputed. And you see, for instance, in the cases of the Parliament of Paris, people alleging customs and they're different or they're opposite. So then the court would have to decide what custom is. Um, but custom um, would be the primary legal norm. Um, legislation increases in the 13th century, but it covers a very small proportion of law. And that's something that we can see from the law books that are written down, right, that are a lot more detailed. They may not always provide an accurate description of uh, the way law works. They provide an attempt, one person's attempt to describe the, the way law worked, but it does show a much more, uh, in much more detail, uh, the kinds of law that existed. Because of course, you know, we think, uh, perhaps in modern times of legislation as comprehensive, but a lot of the time, you know, especially uh, in earlier times, legislation is meant to correct specific problems of the current day. And so you have a, things that work, right, don't need to be legislated because they're working. And so that's kind of, that's why people look to custom, which, you know, it literally means, I think a lot of the time, um, simply practice to what people are doing. And then that comes to be defined in uh, specific ways by um, Romanists, by scholars of canon law, um, and also by jurists developing vernacular customary law. So importantly, custom, as I said, but also Roman law is really important. And I think it's important to emphasize that ideas, uh, legal ideas, from the Romans actually came to people at different levels of education in different ways. So for instance, 
without at all studying canon law or Roman law, you might pick up uh, at, at university level. So as a secondary study after studying the liberal arts, right, you get to specialize in Roman law or canon law. But even long before that, in your elementary education, you might come across Cicero or Quintilian. And there's actually a lot of Roman law available through these authors, um, both norms and working out of uh, classic categories uh, of law, even such as customary law, um, but also in terms of the advice they have on how to plead, right? So a lot of procedural information. So without studying, right, um, uh, at an upper level legal studies, people would have, educated people would have some notion of Roman law, which you could, after going to university and studying liberal arts, that you could specialize in, right? So you could either, like we said earlier, study Roman law or canon law or both. The other thing to know about legal sources in France is that a person living in the south of France and a person living in the north of France might describe this a little bit differently. It's a truism of French legal historiography that uh, southern France was an area that really stressed um, the importance of Roman law and that the north stressed the importance of customary law. And in fact, um, the this legal division mirrors a linguistic division between the South being the Languedoc area, the language of the Latin version of saying yes, and the North being uh, the Languedoc, which is the more um, Germanic form of saying yes in French. And um, this linguistic difference is mirrored in a legal difference. Um, and so the South is said to be very Romanized, the North not. I think that distinction to a certain extent is true. So Roman procedure, the use of notaries develops faster uh, and uh, more in the South of France, but custom remains a really important source of law in the South of France. And sometimes you hear of Roman law being spoken as a form of custom. So you'll see sources say the custom of Roman law. And in the North, if you look at texts of customary law, many of them also include Roman law or canon law as a source. So I think the difference is not as stark as uh, it's sometimes made out to be. It's really uh, a question of degree, right? Custom is important in both places. Roman and canon law are both important. It just in different quantities, really, depending on, on where you are. Okay, that's great. Uh, we have talked a lot about procedural matters, and now I think we can get into uh, some more legal substantive matters. But first, we will take a quick break. Can you give a description of the feudal system in medieval France? Yeah, so that question really actually taps into really important uh, discussions that medievalists and medieval French historians have been having about the nature of law and legal transformations in the period that we're talking about. There was an initial article several decades ago, actually, by um, uh, Elizabeth Brown uh, that argued that feudalism was a tyrannous construct, that it didn't have um, 
that it's a modern word used to understand the Middle Ages, but in so doing kind of shapes uh, the Middle Ages in ways that are inauthentic to the source evidence. And this argument was continued by Susan Reynolds, who wrote a really important book called Thieves and Vassals. My take um, on what or how we should be thinking about land tenure in the Middle Ages is the following. So one of the critiques of this term feudalism is that it's used to signify economy, social structure and law uh, without any kind of specificity. One thing is certain, there was one form of property or of land tenure, right, that was known as, that was called the fief. And the fief was a kind of property that was bestowed by a lord on um, their man or their men, um, their vassals. And it was bestowed in return for services. That existed and was important, but Susan Reynolds has shown that there was actually a lot of property that was not in this form. So there was also a lot of what we call allodial property, property that um, was not, was owned, you know, in, in a way that we would call ownership, right? Um, that was no owned kind of more completely. We certainly see that in property transactions, for instance, right? Uh, we see property that's allodial and owned completely by a person. We see allodial property that becomes part of uh, that becomes a fief, that becomes a property that is in a relationship and owed for services. And we see the opposite as well. And another interesting thing we see in, in uh, especially 13th century sources is a difference between acquisitions and conquests. So conque and acque sounds very similar in, in French, where property that you conquered, um, at least at the beginning, uh, you would own in kind of an absolute way and some and then over time, right, with inheritances and differing situation of of the heirs, it might get involved in kind of more of a, a feudal network. But um, so that is sort of the story for uh, landed property. I will say that in French historiography, there there are really live debates about this. Some people describe a feudal revolution. Right, that occurred um, in around the 10th century. And some people describe a mutation where land slowly became embedded in these networks. Susan Reynolds basically says that it was lawyers who were studying in universities who developed these ideas, and then these ideas came to be reflected in practice. I don't know if the if all historians are convinced of um, one story ran another, but I think she she makes a really important, you know, I think she makes a really important addition to this debate. I hope my lawyer listeners heard that you can make a real difference out there, uh, <laughs> at least according to one legal historian. Uh, I'm wondering, okay, so if I'm in a land dispute with my neighbor. I, that seems like something that I would bring to my feudal lord. Uh, ba basically, you were talking about the lower level courts. If I have a dispute with my, first of all, is that correct? And then second of all, uh, if I have a dispute maybe with my feudal lord, can I appeal to the king? Is there someone higher uh, that I can get to deal with that dispute or am I kind of just done there? 
Uh, yes and yes. So um, in France, as the appeal develops, maybe late 12th century, definitely 13th century, there are two grounds. Uh, first, one is uh, denial of justice. Your Lord simply won't give you a day in court. And the other one is false judgment. Uh, so if you get a judgment that seems to contradict your vision of law and then you can go and appeal at a higher level if it's with your lord you would appeal to their lord potentially until until the king okay thank you now that we've talked about property law maybe we can cover criminal law can you please describe how crimes are prosecuted in medieval france so crimes the medieval kind of um in france jurisdiction was divided into high justice and low justice. High justice was specifically for those crimes that were seen as especially heinous. And it's defined a little bit differently depending on where you look. But generally, I would say that these were crimes that um, were punishable by the death penalty. Notably, the list usually includes murder, arson, rape, uh, robbery and larceny, but larceny was debated. Uh, so those are those are usually considered high justice crimes that could be punishable uh, by death, and otherwise everything else was low justice. So you could have you could be somebody who just had high, uh, you could be somebody who just had low justice, or you could be somebody who had both, both low justice and high justice. So that that's a little bit the general, a little bit the general outline. And scholars have shown that kind of a concern or fear of crime is something that really increases uh, in the closing centuries of the Middle Ages. So Claude Gauvard, French scholar, showed that in 14th century on, there's an increasing fear of crime uh, and. One of the things we see, for instance, is in the later 14th century, we have the development of specifically criminal registers uh, for the Parliament of Paris, for instance. Manuscripts that talk about uh, high justice and low justice, you know, they usually the images associated are usually ones of hanging in the early 13th century. But by the 14th century, we start getting a lot more uh, more spectacular punishment of crime. Uh, so not just the punishment of the criminal, but uh, a real spectacle for society to see the punishment of the criminal. How did they catch criminals? It was actually really difficult to catch criminals. Um, and it was difficult once the there's a move kind of towards more inquisitorial procedure because you need a certain level of proof and uh but beyond you know different levels of proof criminals would often run away so it would be difficult to prove or catch criminals and um outside of that there's also a lot of mitigation practices uh in terms of granting pardons to criminals um as a show of mercy by the kings and so on but you know i think so that's one answer to the question the other answer is the hue and cry, right? Uh, it's maybe a famous kind of thing of the Middle Ages, but the first thing, uh, your first obligation if you hear or see of a crime is to start shouting out. And 
the community would be kind of a first level of intervention. Okay, that makes sense. I would assume that a lot of people were able to uh, flee, but maybe that's why the punishments were uh, sometimes so severe, uh, because if you do catch a criminal, you need to uh, properly deter. Is that a a fair uh, take? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I would categorize the punishments as so severe in the sense that, you know, in the Roman world, capital punishment is common. In the early modern world, capital punishment is common. So um, I'm not sure there are kind of more severe than in the periods before or after. Certainly um, displaying the body of the criminal having been punished is at very least, you know, a message of deterrence also uh, provides a feeling of perhaps satisfaction for the community that uh, criminals are being caught and punished. So then it's um, perhaps a feeling of safety or relief, uh, but also a message about the people who are doing the catching and the prosecuting, right? So um, it's it's also um, strengthens um, the position, you know, of, kings of the judicial officers to be able to provide that feeling for the community. I understand that the process on the continental system is conceived of as quite different than in the Anglo world. Uh, It's a process that frankly, I'm very unfamiliar with the inquisitorial system. Um, How, you know, uh, mechanically did this operate in medieval France? And were there, you know, basic rights afforded to captured criminals, like uh, the right, a right against self-incrimination. Was there anything like that? And how did it work? So there was a little bit the opposite of a right um, against self-incrimination. You know, the well, that's, best that's problematic, kind of... but sorry, go ahead. <laughs> well, the best kind of proof of a crime was if the criminal confessed, right? So that is, you know, I would say the opposite of that. But Inquisitorial procedure, when people hear that term, they often think of inquisition and um, people being tortured for their religious belief. Inquisitorial procedure, uh, when it comes in, is kind of perceived, and the way historians often write about it is that it's more rational because it's a system that's based on proof and interrogation. So, which is different from what preceded, uh, which is a lot of oath-taking and oath-helping, as well as ordeal when things were complicated and very unknown. Society might turn to an ordeal where um, a ritual right, would be performed and, um, and the results of the ritual would show um, what God revealed uh, about the truth of the matter. So inquisitorial procedure comes in uh, as a judge-led way of gathering information where people are interrogated in order to find truth. And within inquisitorial procedure, there is an idea of full proof and then half proofs. A full proof is a... is a confession or two witnesses, half proofs are one witness, for instance. Um, And so that's um, that's how that system, that's the idea kind of behind that system. That's great. And that's very helpful. Thank you. So we've talked about property law and we've talked about criminal law. I think 
lawyers today oftentimes will see uh, the practice of law pretty discreetly because they'll be a certain type of lawyer. They'll be, for example, a uh, a commercial lawyer. Was there integration in terms of how these different areas of law worked? So I would be surprised if any 13th century lawyer would see themselves as specialized in terms of domains of law. Um, and generally, you know, when you have a treatise of customary law, it just describes law generally, um, some elements in more or less detail. Um, but these things are described together. Now at the um, level of the universities, um, or more specialized uh, jurists of canon law and Roman law, you certainly see treatises developing on specific subjects. Uh, but um, to my knowledge, people would not have specialized in one form of law, property or contract or, uh, or others, but they would have just known law. Um, but you might have specialized by function. So for instance, there were notaries, that was an important position, they specialized in, in documents. There were um, advocates, right, really kind of people who uh, were pleading on behalf of others. There were people who would work in the court chancery. Um, and sometimes these functions overlapped as well, right? Um, but certainly I would say it's a more generalist training in terms of practice, especially when it comes to uh, to the lay courts. Are there any other areas of law of note that we haven't discussed here yet? Yes. Uh, and partially the reason is, you know, I'm really somebody who specializes more in lay courts than in ecclesiastical courts, but there are entire areas of, for instance, family law that I haven't covered here. And uh, in terms of that, I would look at the work of Sarah McDougall, who you know, I'm going to name scholars who write in English, because I assume the audience is primarily English speaking and reading. Um, so the work of Sarah McDougall to look at canon law, uh, or uh, specifically in the French context, uh, or for instance, the work of Rowan Doran. Uh, he recently came out with a book on the legal issues associated with the expulsion of Jews. So um, outside of that, you know, we could be talking about the law of treaties, right? Um, the 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 forms of international law that exist in the Middle Ages. So there, there are certainly areas we, we haven't covered. Great. Uh, plenty of more topics for a future podcast then. Uh, <laughs> great. So we can, uh, we can start to put a, a bow on this conversation. How did Jus Commune influence French law? So Roman, Jus Commune is normally defined as uh, Roman law and canon law. And both of those were really important for how French law developed. It's really common to talk about their influence. Um, and I would kind of correct that language, um, you know, slightly in the sense that I think it's really important to recognize that people uh, went and they studied um, ideas from both Roman and canon law, but then they created wholly new things out of them. And so um, Roman law and canon law were enormously important in helping or providing um, a toolkit that people use to innovate uh, 
procedure that they use to innovate specific legal concepts, for instance, you know, basic ideas about property. Uh, but I want to highlight the entrepreneurial quality of these people who are taking Roman and canon law and growing and developing uh, things you know, uh, out of them, right? So uh, enormously important, but also there's a real individual um, and group um, development outside of kind of the strictures of those systems. That makes a lot of sense. And it seems like a, uh, a more nuanced way of looking at it, certainly. Great. And so we've been talking today almost exclusively about uh, medieval French law. Can you describe how medieval French law may be set the stage for the development of French law through the Renaissance and up to maybe the Napoleonic period. Uh, we, we don't have to get super specific, but just in general, what sort of tracks were laid during this period? Well, I think a lot of medievalists would answer that question by saying that, um, you know, what happens next is both kind of a natural conclusion as well as a building upon earlier developments. That's certainly true in terms of, um, you know, some of the forms in which law comes. So that's true uh, of the courts. That's true of the law books in the sense that they kind of take a shape that they will keep, but they'll they'll become more specialized and they'll split into more organs. You know, one of the things we see in the Middle Ages is people developing what I like to call uh, a vernacular law as opposed to university law, university law uh, will come to increasingly shape the nature of French law 14th century on as more and more graduates start working in administration. And so, for instance, a mid 13th century law book and a late 14th century law book will look similar it'll say these are the customs of this particular area. But if you look at the late 14th century one, they're using a lot of concepts and much more concept and structure um, that's borrowed from Roman law, even if it's redigested in kind of new ways. So, um, so there's that. And then what you see later, of course, is the ever expanding importance of the Kings. Uh, they're, and developments of notions of French common law. We see that earlier. We see that already in 13th century texts that authors are referring to a notion of common law that becomes really important, especially in the 16th century, which is also a time when people start debating the nature of the soul of French law. Is it more Romanist or is it, you know, in the words of the day, kind of more Germanist? And then, of course, one of the things we can't forget in terms of what happens after the Middle Ages is empire. So France goes from, uh, you know, being um, a polity in Europe to being an empire um, in far-flung places across the world. And notions that we've been discussing of law or legislation and customary law come to be mapped on to empire in different ways, where um, the the form of norm of the metropole is characterized as law and the form of norm practiced by indigenous people, by conquered people is categorized as custom. And you can already see a tension between those two, even though custom is so important um, in the middle ages and a lot of arguments about 
um, you know, a lot of statements like, you know, agreement beats law or, um, but there, there's certainly arguments being made from uh, universities and centralized power about law being more important, laws and legislation being more important than customary law. And that's something that really um, shapes up more firmly in the age of empire. But, you know, if you look at, for instance, um, New France, uh, when norms, you know, this is like a um, commercial enterprise at the beginning, but when you hear a norm being mentioned, it's, for instance, a custom of Normandy, right? So they're using medieval language, but in new worlds, and then it goes off in its own direction. I don't think we're going to go into much detail there, but, um, but intellectual frameworks and language used to describe law is something that has a lot of staying power between the Middle Ages and what follows afterwards. That's very intriguing. And there's a lot to tease out. Um, perhaps on a, on many future episodes, uh, we can do that. Uh, so you've been extremely generous with your time. And I would just like to conclude by asking you if there's anything that you've been working on that you would like to share with the audience. Well, uh, so some of the things that I've been talking about, I discuss in a book that I published recently, very recently with Cambridge University Press titled Vernacular Law, Writing and Reinvention of Customary Law in Medieval France. And um, that particular book is about kind of what it meant to write custom as a form of comprehensive rule and what it meant to write it in the vernacular. And I won't say what it meant. Everybody should read it. Um, but uh, I suppose that's a thing that I've been working on for a long time. And in the future, I'd like to look more at uh, law in relationship or as it develops in conquered places and think more about the relationship between medieval and early modern. Got it. That sounds very interesting. And we will look for your books now and in the future. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure.